It's 1908, and imagine a world where the rumble of an engine is still a novelty, where whole communities had only read about automobiles, and where long journeys were taken on train, horseback, or ship. Now, into this world, inject the audacious idea of a car race stretching tens of thousands of miles around the world, from New York to Paris. It wasn't until this race that, not only in the United States, but in the world, the perception of the horseless carriage changed. Great-grandpa always tried to emphasize to us as children that uh, no matter what somebody tells you, if, if it's worth doing, it can be done. That was Jeff Maul. He's the great-grandson of George Schuster, who won the Great Race of 1908. In it, he drove a 60-horsepower 1907 Model 35 Thomas Flyer. This is Fuel for the Future, presented by State Farm Insurance and driven by America's Automotive Trust. I'm Michael May. Briefly, we spoke about the 1908 Great Race in a previous episode, which detailed the current form of that competition and the X-Cup division therein, which involves students working with classic cars in this highly competitive endurance race. Jeff Mall is an integral part of that event and its mission, but personally, I've always been fascinated with the original race of 1908. It's an epic journey that tested human resilience, mechanical endurance, and ingenuity. It's a story that would make an incredible television series full of drama, bribery, egos, fighting, cheating, bandits. Yes, bandits. So, as we turn the pages of history back over a century, Jeff is generously sharing some of the stories of that great race. Do you have a memory from the first time you learned about the great race of 1908? Probably uh, the first recollection would have been maybe at age five or six. And it would have been a, a family gathering holiday. But I do remember great grandpa talking to us uh, as children. And uh, it was in his front living room. And that would have been uh, probably the earliest recollection of it. And where did you grow up? And did you grow up near your great grandfather? Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, born and raised in Springville, New York, south of Buffalo, New York. And uh, that was where great-grandpa had moved to after his time with uh, Thomas and Pierce Arrow. Mm -hmm. And he moved to Springville to open the first Dodge Brothers dealership outside of the city of Buffalo. Oh, wow. Correct me if I'm wrong, but your your great-grandfather, and, and we'll get into his involvement with the Thomas Flyer, but he was a mechanic by trade. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, born and raised in uh, South Buffalo. and. Uh, actually never completed the sixth grade, which was not that unusual uh, in those days, and went to work uh, in his father's blacksmith shop, uh, making uh, steel rims for what were then horse-drawn streetcars in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. He was born in 1873. You told me a story the other day, and I'd love for you to tell it again. The first time you kind of realized that your great-grandfather was part of this amazing historical race. You were telling me about a school project or assignment. Can you tell me about that? Uh, yes, that was uh, one of those uh, 
moments in a young person's life where something triggers uh, either a, a memory or a, a desire. And it was uh, a homework assignment in the seventh grade. And I remember the teacher uh, made the assignment. We could write on anything that we wanted to, and it was due that Friday. Well, I'm a typical seventh grader, so naturally I wait until Thursday night to even <laughs> think about the assignment. And I thought, for lack of a, of a better uh, topic, I thought, well, I could write on this race that great-grandpa had been telling us for years. And I remember I finished that assignment on the school bus on the way to uh, school that morning, turned it in that Friday, and got it back the following Monday with a big A-plus on the top of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I thought, this was the easiest A-plus possible. I mean, I knew more about early automotive history than the teacher did, and um, apparently it was a topic of interest. So it was pretty much at that moment that it, it triggered uh, the fact in my mind that I better start paying attention, and fortunately I did. You knew the story that young. You had started hearing it, uh, obviously, as a as a young child, and you got to be around your great grandfather who won the race. Which is, is that's just an extraordinary thing to think about when you think about the the weight and the significance of the great race in 1908. Um, so I'd love to hear some of the story of the race. But as we do that. What kind of background can you tell us about the world in 1908, like the lack of roads, the type of technology with automobiles and things like that? It's so different than we think of the automobile today. Um, two factors were involved. First off, uh, at that time, the price of an automobile was far greater than the price of a house. The only people who actually had an automobile were the ultra wealthy, the Rockefellers and and uh, families such as that. And uh, even they never drove the, their automobile. They always right. had a chauffeur. As a matter of fact, E.R. Thomas, who was building automobiles, never drove an, uh, a Thomas. He always had a chauffeur. So the perception was that this was a toy for the wealthy. Uh, you couldn't drive it in the wintertime. Snowplows hadn't been invented. Antifreeze hadn't been invented. There were no roads. In 1908, there were only 127 miles of paved road in the United States. Uh, only uh, 127 miles of paved road. I did not realize that. Wow. And that was primarily in the cities. Once you left mm -hmm. the city limits, uh, you were very much on your own. In the very early 1900s, if you wanted to go from point A to point B and any distance was involved, there were only two ways. It was the locomotive or it was... A horse. Mm -hmm. And those were your options. Uh, the automobile was a toy and unreliable, very expensive, and a curiosity uh, more than anything else. It wasn't until this race that not only in the United States, but in the world, the perception of the horseless carriage changed. No automobile had ever crossed the United States in the wintertime. Uh, this, this was a first at many levels, and it proved to uh, millions of people around the world the viability of the automobile as a form of transportation. Right. And that's what I wanted to ask next, because the the effect that this had on the world is is a great one. 
And I also think about the Peking to Paris, the endurance race of 1907, uh, which I imagine had to be a little bit of an influence on wanting to go around the world. Would it not have been? Yes. As a matter of fact, the Lama 10 newspaper in Paris sponsored the Peking to Paris race in 07. Mm-hmm. And uh, what they discovered uh, was that it sold a lot of newspapers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> newspapers in those days was what we would think of reality TV today. And if you wanted to know where your team was, your favorite team somewhere around the world, you would have to buy a newspaper and that would tell you um, maybe a week earlier. Right. Uh, but at least you had an idea of where everybody was. Well, after the Peking to Paris race, uh, the Lama 10 decided that uh, they needed something even bigger and better. And that's when they teamed up with the New York Times to co-sponsor the unbelievably incredible, impossible, uh, there's so many uh, definitions <laughs> beyond, that can be used for that uh, effort. Um, that would be the next the next race. And it was that following uh, year, 1908, when it happened. There were six teams involved with the the race of 1908. Can you tell us a little bit about those teams? (laughs) Well, there were three French, uh, the Motoblock and the César Nadin. Now, the César was only a single-cylinder, 15-horsepower. And uh, I remember Greg Gramp telling the first sight he had of that was at the starting line really in new york city (laughs) and he looked at that and i mean most of our lawnmowers today have more power than that car had and he didn't give it uh uh, much of a chance and a matter of fact the cesar got to in the area of where poughkeepsie is today uh ran into a snowbank and they were out of the race uh the motorblock also failed did not cross the united states the Third French entry was the um, Daddy en Poutin, and uh, that was actually withdrawn from the race. And uh, uh, when they landed in Vladivostok, the Marquis, uh, who uh, Daddy en, who actually owned the company, his family threatened to have him declared legally insane and remove him from the leadership position in the company for having spent so much money on this foolish race. Wow. And uh, so that took out the third French car. The, the remaining three, the um, Italian Zust, which was a team of teenagers and early 20-somethings, wow. uh, the German Protus, which was an all-military team. Every man on that team were German army, headed by Lieutenant Hans Kuppen on leave from the German general staff in Berlin, and of course, the Thomas Flyer. Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to point out as well that, you know, you have these countries represented, and I I would imagine that it's there's a, a sense of pride to not only the, the people from these individual countries representing their, their countries, but also the manufacturers and the engineers behind each automobile and how each one would have been really hoping that not only can you complete the race, but hopefully give yourself a chance to win. That is very correct. Uh, the United States wouldn't have entered a team at all. Ransom mm-hmm. Olds and Henry Ford refused. But uh, President Teddy Roosevelt was, of course, in office. And when he heard that Germans, Italians, Frenchmen were going to race horses, carriages across the United States, 
you knew what Teddy Roosevelt was going to say. There's going to be an American at the start of that race. And he, um, uh, great-grandpa often used the word encourage, which with kind of a uh, wry smile, uh, <laughs> when Teddy, <laughs> Teddy contacted E.R. Thomas and said, I think it'd be a good idea if you entered a car in this race. And in those days, when Teddy Roosevelt said something like that, guess what? You did it. You did it. And that's that's why America had an entry. The Thomas Flyer is now a historically significant car. And I would love to hear a little bit more about the automobile, how it got chosen, how the Thomas got chosen, and also how your great-grandfather, George Schuster, became part of the team. With respect to the 1907 Model 35 Thomas Flyer, uh, it was chosen right off the lot and not extensively prepared as were the other cars from France, Germany, and Italy. And uh, a, a really uh, historic moment for the Thomas was when it was inducted into the uh, National Historic Vehicle Register, and that mm -hmm. was in 2016. Um, to be selected for the register, uh, it took a year and a half of research into the provenance. It's actually jointly, the register is jointly administered by the um, Department of Interior and the Library of Congress. And um, it's quite a different process. I, I know everybody's kind of familiar with historic buildings and, and uh, you know, there's hundreds, probably thousands of them in the United States. But uh, this project has been going on for, um, well, uh, five, uh, actually a little more than five years. And uh, there's only, last I looked, uh, only 30 American-built, historically significant uh, vehicles, automobiles in the National Historic Vehicle Register. So it's a very, very selective group. And um, that, of course, not only uh, well-documented, but uh, preserved the uh, Thomas Flyer. For George, uh, it was his induction into the um, Automotive Hall of Fame in Dearborn, Michigan. And that was in 2010. Mm -hmm. And again, that was a, a very selective uh, process of Americans who had a significant impact on the history of the automobile. Um, interestingly, uh, Henry Ford and Ransom Olds are in that register, as you might uh, or uh, might expect, in the Hall of Fame. And uh, now, of course, uh, George Schuster is right next to him. Um, and those were the fellows who said it couldn't be done. And of course, George did it. So it was it was quite quite a satisfying moment yeah. uh, when that happened. It, it, how does it feel? To to see your great grandfather there, just know that he's he's right there up with these, you know, massive figures of automotive history. Well, uh, uh, it's of course with great satisfaction, and I knew uh, I've known for years, long before 2010, that he really uh, deserved a position in the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. And um, like so many things, uh, sometimes the the wheels of uh, recording history uh, turn slowly. 
his story starts in an interesting way because he was not the only person in the Thomas Flyer. And I know that there's some uh, really just interesting stories about how the drivers got involved and how people sort of popped in and out in the various teams, uh, which I, I, I we don't have to jump into that now. We can kind of get to that as we go through the race. Um, but yeah, so the Thomas Flyer gets in the race. And is there anything else to tell us about that before before we kind of hit the, you know, the starting line? I think that uh, one of the things to take into consideration is the fact of short notice on this and also kind of the attitude that people had back at the turn of the cent- last century. Um, literally, uh, Great Gramp was in Providence, Rhode Island, demonstrating uh, the new 1908 model. Uh, to dealer, and it was there that he got a telephone call from the office in Buffalo um, saying that ER had decided to enter car. And uh, this was the day before the race started. (laughs) And uh, it was on February the 11th, and the instruction from the office was that uh, he was to be in Times Square the next morning to start a race around the world. And that's how much notice he had. Yeah, uh, he did. He did counter with the fact that he had a suitcase full of dirty laundry, and he thought he was coming down with a cold. But uh, yes, in fact, he would take the night train to New York and be in Times Square the next morning to start this race. Next call he made was back to Buffalo, where Rose, my great grandmother, was with her young son George Jr., who was four years old at the time, and uh, she, they were expecting him back that weekend. And he said, well, he was sorry. He, The factory wanted him to go to New York. And Rose countered with, well, what do they want you to fix? And <laughs> no, no, no. That's, uh, they want me to drive a car around the world starting tomorrow morning. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I remember uh, Great Gramp describing the conversation. There was a very, very long pause uh, on the phone. And the next thing Rose said was simply, George, I will pray for you. Now, I don't know how many wives today uh, would do that. <laughs> it would be like, you're going to go what? And do go where? And how long is this going to take? And uh, it, it, it it was different. I think that the deciding and, and why he reacted as quickly as he did, it was when he heard that Teddy Roosevelt wanted uh wanted them to do it right that's that was the clincher that was the deal closer and once great graham heard that uh it was yes i will be there tomorrow morning yeah and i i want to just make this perfectly clear for people that might not be envisioning this but 1908 a race around the world in automobiles this is not something that's going to happen very quickly you're not away for a week or two. This this is this is a huge, huge time commitment that he had to make, you know, on a whim. You're right, and uh, I, it it would be very comparable to a moon launch, right? You right. know, in our in our uh, history, mm-hmm. and it, it, it was deemed impossible. Uh, some of the most famous people in the world had said it can't be done. Mm. Uh, it was turned out it was going to be 169 days uh, of every day being an ultimate test of endurance. Uh, think about it. Uh, think about when you're driving now in a snowstorm. 
and how you stay at home because you don't want to be out in a blizzard. Well, they had to drive through the blizzards, and there were no roads, and there were no snow plows. Yeah, what would you yeah. do? Uh, today, if you uh, have a flat on the interstate, it's like a major deal. You call AAA, and you have to wait 45 minutes for them to get there, and you're quite upset that it took 45 minutes. Imagine going through, they lost count of the number of tires they blew out. And in those days, you didn't carry a mounted spare. You had to mm -hmm. disassemble a split rim, mount the new tire, the new tube, blow it up with a bicycle pump, mm -hmm. then uh, lower the car back down before you could go. That It was a process that, even for somebody's experience as George, would take uh, 40, 45 minutes to do. And that's also why you needed somebody like him, someone that actually can be a mechanic, because you can't you can't take on this race without knowing how to constantly be working on the car. And that's why he was selected. Uh, mm -hmm. He just, even though, as I say, never having uh, completed sixth grade, had a natural mechanical sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Take us through the race. Tell us about, you know, the start. And I should also mention that this is, they're leaving from New York, going to Paris, and they're doing it via going west across the United States. And the plan was to then head up to Alaska, cut across to Europe via the, you know, the Bering Strait and, uh, and go from there, which is just boggling my mind thinking about it even today. Well, the start, of course, was in New York City. And uh, when George arrived the morning of February 12th, there were a quarter of a million people, 250,000 people to see this. Um, and again, it's because it was something that had never happened uh, mm -hmm. prior to that time and was inconceivable uh, for the average person. And it turned out to be every bit as much of a struggle as what a lot of people had imagined. The mayor of New York was to start the race at 11 o'clock in the morning. And um, even with a police escort, the mayor could not get through to the, um, actually, the starting line uh, was at the Times Square building at the end of uh, Times Square's, uh, the New York Times building uh, mm -hmm. that you see every New Year's Eve. Well, the mayor couldn't make it, so at 11.15, the task of firing a gold-plated revolver into the air over Times Square uh, fell to the president of the uh, Auto Club of America, which is today's AAA. Mm -hmm. um, he fired that uh, pistol. I, I don't think you'd get away with that today in Times Square, but uh, <laughs> it, it was the thing to do in, in 1908, and that began the race. And uh, from there, going up through to uh, the northern limits of, of New York, uh, there was no snow on the ground. But uh, pretty much at the start uh, or at the end of the last borough in New York is where the snow started. And there's extraordinary pictures. A New York Times correspondent actually rode with the Thomas Fire around the world. First use of an embedded reporter. And mm -hmm. for that reason, uh, this race was so well documented. Each of the uh, team members uh, also had small cameras at the time, but uh, the New York Times reporter responsibility was to take five photographs per day and file a story back to New York. So that's the documentation is incredible on this. Right. Uh, they got to Buffalo. Uh, for those familiar with upstate New York and, and the Northeast in particular, you know what winter is like in uh, the Northeast, especially in those days. Leaving Buffalo, they encountered the worst 
blizzard in recorded history as they rounded uh, Lake Erie headed for Toledo, Ohio. And uh, snow, the snow was so deep that it actually came over the hood and was over the radiator cap. Now, th- th- this is no little Pinto that they're driving. That radiator cap is about roof level of what most modern cars are today. Having no idea how far that drift extended, uh, they dragged it with teams of horses. Uh, there were six horses that they hooked to the front axle, dragging it through a snowdrift, which ultimately extended for one and one half miles. And they measured their progress that night in feet per hour. Um, yeah. And, and they hadn't even gone to Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> they, they got to Chicago and fortunately the snow ended, but uh, that's when the mud started axle deep mud and uh from there uh, it was slogging their way through this incredible sticky mud uh, they actually uh, made first use uh, they stopped and, and uh, prevailed upon a local fire department that had a pumper truck brought the pumper truck out that normally would be used for putting out fires manual four men on each side rocking that pumper truck putting pressure on the hose, two men on the end of the nozzle squirting the mud off the Thomas Flyer, they didn't realize they had invented the first car wash. (laughs) Worked so well that they tried, while they were in these muddy conditions, to stop it at towns that would be large enough to have a fire department with a pumper truck. They got to Cheyenne, Wyoming. The uh, trails, roads, what little there was, ran out. The only thing that ran east-west was the Union Pacific Railroad. Mm -hmm. They went to the station master and actually got an order making the Thomas Flyer Union Pacific locomotive number 274 and continued on the Union Pacific rail bed, not the rails, but actually driving tie to tie to tie to tie uh, along the Union Pacific. I would imagine there's a lot of ingenuity along the way, not just with mechanical things and getting out of mud, which, you know, is a daily constant occurrence at this time, but also coming up with those routes, finding the, you know, the best way to go. Now, were all the teams, did they all have like an exact map where they have to go a certain way? Or was it, was it a little more kind of like they can kind of pick and choose certain areas? Well, they had uh, uh, New York, of course, as a start, and San Francisco as the end. So they followed more or less the natural terrain. Um, The Union Pacific Railroad actually extended through what would ultimately become the route of the Lincoln Highway, the first paved highway across the United States. And it was a natural flat area. And then through the mountains, it was the the least uh, difficult route to take. So it was kind of a case of picking the route according to the terrain. And there was a lot of invention along the way as to how you were going to do that and a lot of wrong turns. But um, there was no map. There were, there were no maps in 1908. The, the map that he got when he got to the coast of Asia at Vladivostok and entered Asia proper, um, from there, it was 9,000 miles, three times the distance across the United States wow. to get across to Asia and Europe. Well, the map that he had, and still ha- I still have that map today. He kept everything. Um, actually, is about two and a half feet in length, and it has Asia on the right-hand side and Europe on the left-hand side. 
no routes, a few dots where the major cities were, <laughs> and a whole lot of mountains and tundra and everything else in between. That was it. There were there were, there was no GPS. There was no trip ticket. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing. Uh, it, it again was uh, probably uh, far more uh, daunting than even they could have imagined at the start of the race in New York. Mm-hmm. And okay, so they're they're crossing through. You said Cheyenne and heading towards the west coast. Yes, uh, it was there that uh, they took to the tracks. Um, there was one instance uh, they had to actually take on a conductor. The Union Pacific locomotive can't run without a conductor. So in the back of the car was sitting a Union Pacific conductor with his conductor hat and his clipboard and a red lantern. <laughs> well, they had gone not, not five miles, and uh, bang, the uh, right front tire blew out. They didn't have stone between the railroad ties in those days. So you would go into this dip between every single tie. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you can imagine the beating on yeah. not only the tires, but every, everything else, including the occupants. Blew the tire out, and there was a westbound Union Pacific Express that did not stop for anything. Well, in the process of changing the tire, they were delayed. So the last thing Great Grandpa said was he saw the conductor waving his red lantern running east to try and stop the westbound express. Mm-hmm. He did. Uh, fortunately, the Thomas Flyer was not flattened on the Union Pacific tracks by this locomotive. They got the tire changed, pulled off to the siding, and uh, once the uh, locomotive passed, they were back underway to San Francisco. They made San Francisco in a record time, first automobile to ever cross the United States in winter. And it took them 41 days, eight hours and 15 minutes to do that. Wow. Wow. 41 days. And I think we're getting now to one of my favorite aspects of this story, uh, which is when they, when George and the Thomas Flyer heads up to Alaska. So I'd love to hear about you know the problems that he encountered, not only going up there, but also what he ended up having to do to eventually get across across the sea. Well, no, no automobile had ever been in the Alaskan territory, so no one had any clue as to what they were capable of. They landed in Valdez, Alaska, and uh, actually offloaded the flyer onto the pier. But there was so much snow that they couldn't even drive the flyer from the ship to shore on this pier. <laughs> and uh, there was a fellow there, uh, Dan Kennedy, who was the agent for Wells Fargo. And Wells Fargo in those days ran a, uh, a line between Valdez and Fairbanks, Alaska. And, and during the wintertime in particular, it was dog sled or right. horse-drawn sleigh. They start out in a horse-drawn sleigh um, after George asked Dan, you know, what's the trail like? And Dan says, I've never seen an automobile before. I don't know what it can do. So they get on the sleigh and go out and they, they bury the sleigh. There's a picture. You can just see the head of the horse and the top part of the sleigh. The rest is sunk into the snow. And uh, here the, the race organizers thought that they could drive that 5,000-pound Thomas on top of this <laughs> crust of snow that would form. Well, obviously that didn't happen. So they switched over to a dog sled. Dog sled takes them to a place called Thompson Pass. Uh, I've been up there, and Thompson Pass is still there. And uh, in those days, it was very, very narrow, the only cut through the mountains that there was. And uh, the picture shows a horse 
uh, and a rider in the uh, center of this V-shaped gap in the mountain. And so Kennedy says to uh, Great Grandpa, he says, well, it's too narrow. You can't get through with the width of the car. Great Grandpa says, oh, that's no problem. We'll just get dynamite, blast it wide enough so that I can fit the car through. <laughs> but then uh, Kennedy said, well, after that, there's 40 miles of forest. You know, it's not wide enough. Well, no problem. We'll hire Eskimos. We're going to cut 40 miles of forest wide enough, the trail, so I can fit the car through. And then he said, well, George, uh, the Yukon River, and particularly Bering Sea, doesn't freeze like a pond. It freezes into pack ice. Uh, and he says, it's, it's impossible. And uh, George had to think for a moment on that one. And this gets back to the Yankee ingenuity. He looks down at the dog sled and he says, uh, Dan, how much will a dog sled carry? And Dan says, oh, a good musher and a good team of dogs will carry 600 pounds. That's it. I'm going to take the 5,000-pound Thomas apart into pieces that weigh no more than 600 pounds, and uh, we're going to dog sled it across Alaska, across Bering Strait. When I get to the frozen tundra of Siberia, I'll put the car back together and drive it on to Paris. No problem. Mm. Well, <laughs> he, he telegraphs his plan back to New York, which is where the race committee was. And he says, I can do this. I can get across Alaska and the Bering Sea, but it's going to cost $10,000 to get <laughs> just to Fairbanks. Now, you have to multiply that times 25 to come up with today's value yeah. of the money. And uh, that's a quarter of a million dollars just to get to Fairbanks. And that's not even a quarter of the way across Alaska. So the race committee says, come back, uh, take a ship back to Seattle, because they knew that they'd have to do this for everybody and uh, take a steamer across the Pacific and cross it that way. As a result of that, the only team to actually go to Alaska was the American team. And for that, they were given a 15-day advantage. The team is in the lead. So he's given a 15-day advantage. They're the only team to actually make it up to Alaska at all. Uh, did everybody else have to wait for him? Did, ever, did anybody get a sort of a head start crossing the sea from San Francisco? Well, they did get a head start, but the race committee said that they would have to wait in Vladivostok uh, for the Americans because, after all, they had gone to Alaska, which nobody else did. So they mm -hmm. were ordered to uh, halt when the American Thomas Flyer landed uh, at Vladivostok. They had to cross, actually, Japan first and drive, drove across uh, the 90-mile width of Japan. But because of the road system, they had to drive over 300 miles just to get across that 90 miles. Mm -hmm. The uh, team landed in, in Vladivostok, and it was there that the third remaining French car uh, had been uh, actually sold out from underneath the French team, and that <laughs> left the French team without a, without a ride. Well, the French uh, uh, team leader, Bossier saint Chaffrey, who is, in Great Gramps' words, well, he had a few words for Bonsier, but it boiled down to a, a pompous uh, bureaucratic Frenchman, um, thought of himself as the Napoleon of the automobile. So he wasn't about to quit the race at that point. Mm -hmm. And he came up to George and he said, um, I'm going with you in the flyer. And George said to him, well, all four seats are filled. We don't have room for you. And it was there that he said, I'm going with you in the flyer or nobody goes. What happened was St. Joffrey had arrived early enough that he bought up all the gasoline in Vladivostok. 
And so he was holding uh, the oh. gasoline hostage right. uh, in order for the Americans to continue. Fortunately, uh, George, uh, there was a large trading presence, German trading company and in Vladivostok, and he was able to negotiate uh, for the gasoline that he needed and went back to St. Traffery, said that he didn't need the petrol that St. Traffery had. But to ease his concern, he said to St. Traffery, well, the Germans have room in their car. Why don't you ride with them? <laughs> and St. Traffery said, oh, a Frenchman and a German automobile, that would smell bad. And he took the train back to Paris. Wow. Wow. All right. So they're they're in in Asia, the Asian continent. They're going to have to cross through Siberia, correct? Correct. Manchuria and Siberia. And uh, one of the encounters, probably one of the more dangerous, well, everything was dangerous then, but uh, one of the more threatening uh, situations was they had been warned about redbeards, which were Manchurian bandits, horsemen, heavily armed, and, and their tactics were simple. You either paid them or they, they killed you. Mm -hmm. And uh, they actually did encounter six horsemen, uh, these redbeard bandits, uh, at a crossroads. And he said that George said that there was no thought ever of stopping or going back to a safe village waiting for him to leave because, you know, Paris was on the other side of these guys. And uh, so uh, they just continued. And once they got close enough that the bandits could hear them, uh, they all the Americans all started to act like they were crazy, yelling at each other and pointing at each other. And, and uh, of course, the Manchurian bandits had never heard English, uh, had never seen a white man before and never seen the strange thing that could move without having horses uh, horse, towing it. Man. And he said, it must've looked like a spaceship to, to these bandits. And they got close enough and the bandits just parted three on each side of the road. Uh, he got through, never fired a shot, but he couldn't resist. He got just past them. He loaded up the carburetor and let out a backfire. One of the horses <laughs> reared up sliding the bandit down into the mud they just kept driving towards Paris. Wow. Wow. I had never heard that story before. That's incredible. Well, there's, there's 169 days of stories. And oh, the I, difficulty I, I'm faced with <laughs> is, is trying to fit them all in. Yeah. And you, I mean, you can't, we could make this a multi-part thing if we, if we really <laughs> needed to. Um, but no, you're doing a great job. And I love that we're kind of making our way geographically along with the, with the race here. So yeah, so so they get through Siberia which even today I I wouldn't want to drive through Siberia today. Uh that's no. that's absolutely insane that they did that back in 1908 with no roads. And yeah, so what comes next? Right, they cross into Europe and probably the next uh moment uh well actually uh, uh the next moment of difficulty uh they were again forced to use, because even today there's no paved road through that part of uh, Siberia because of permafrost. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they were forced to uh, take to the rail bed of the Trans-Siberian Railroad. And in the process of, of climbing up onto the rail uh, bed, they uh, encountered a mechanical problem. What happened was two teeth were stripped out of the pinion gear, and that's the main transfer point of power from the engine to the rear wheels. and um, of course, uh, with a, uh, those teeth missing, the engine would race and the rear wheels wouldn't turn. So how do you fix it? You don't have a parts plus or a, 
um, uh, FedEx to deliver it to you overnight, you're in the middle of Siberia. And uh, what they did is they took that pinion gear out, they uh, hand drilled it, and then they put in metal screws. And then they filed the heads of those metal screws into the shape of the missing gear teeth and put the pinion gear back in and off they went. Who today would even think of doing anything like that? Right. Um, but they were totally self-reliant. Uh, the next problem that they ran into was actually south of Moscow. Um, they were driving, and, and two of the uh, uh, team members, uh, Great Grant, uh, had to take the train. They were trying to lighten the car down because the Germans at that point were actually ahead and uh, so they could make better speed. And the uh, first problem that they had was with the two of them, they were driving 24 hours a day. They did not stop. And uh, you can imagine driving in the middle of the night with no roads and trying to uh, drive on carbide headlights, uh, settling basically, uh, that they lit with a match um, and were only good for about 20 feet, trying to drive under those conditions over these roads. Well, the first problem that they had was uh, uh, George Miller, who was the mechanic that started the race in uh, Buffalo and continued all the way to Paris. Uh, Great Gramp was the only man actually on the Thomas Flyer from Times Square to the Eiffel Tower. Uh, Miller, while he was sleeping, had a tendency to fall out of the uh, rider's seat, and <laughs> there were no doors on the car. So they took a man's belt, nailed it to the wooden frame of the uh, seat next to the driver, and uh, that was actually the first documented use of a seat belt. It had nothing to do with collision, but was merely an effort to try and keep you in the car while you were sleeping. Uh, short of uh, Moscow, the next incident that uh, really turned out to be a problem uh, was a pigeon uh, was on the road, took flight too late, uh, flew up and actually hit the left front headlight, breaking the glass. Well, if you have acetylene headlights with a flame, uh, the wind would blow it right out. So that took the light out of service. Uh, not thinking that it would be a problem, they continued on. They arrived in Berlin the 26th of July, 1908, and it was there that a very distinguished-looking man came up to them, turned out to be a colonel in the Kaiser's army, and it was Colonel Kupen, the father of Lieutenant Hans Kupen, and he proudly announced that that very day his son had entered the city of Paris to win the New York to Paris race for Germany. Well, they were surrounded by Germans, and Great Gramp was not about to start explaining that, A, his son did not go to Alaska, so he would have to beat him by 15 days, and B, the Germans had cheated. They had <laughs> loaded their, their car on a railroad car in Idaho, shipping it to Seattle. They had suffered a catastrophic breakdown. And the parts were all in Seattle. So they were at first thrown out of the race. They appealed. They were brought back into the race with an additional 15-day penalty. So that meant the Germans would have to beat them by 30 days in order to claim victory. The, uh, they excused themselves from Berlin and made tracks, <laughs> literally, for yeah. Paris. They got to the city gates of Paris on the 30th of July, 1908. It was in the afternoon. In those days, you had to stop at the city gates and pay a tax on your gasoline. 
Well, they didn't have much gas left, and the um, uh, that was not a problem. They had money for it. But in the process, a gendarme, uh, a Parisian policeman, started to slowly circle the car. He comes to that left front headlight, looks up at Great Graham, and looks back down at the light, then puts his hand up, no entree. Well, it seems that the law at that time in Paris was that you had to have two operating headlights to enter the city. Now, this is the middle of the afternoon. Great Gramps says to him, I have just come 169 days, 22,000 miles. I can see the Eiffel Tower, the finish line, and you won't let me in? And the simple reply was, nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he, was, he was getting a little upset at this point. So he got down out of the car and was headed in the direction of the, uh, uh, the policeman. And a bicyclist, Parisian bicyclist, overheard the problem and said, well, monsieur, I have a lamp on my bicycle. You can take that off, put it on your motor car. That will make your second lamp. So mm -hmm. Great Gramp got his tool bag, tried to take it off, couldn't take it off without damaging the lamp and the bicycle. So he hoisted the bicycle lamp and all on the hood of the Thomas Flyer. The policeman, entree. <laughs> the American Thomas Flyer won the New York to Paris race with a bicycle on its foot. As you do, yes. The, as you do. Very very normal now. No, nothing to it, right? <laughs> nothing, nothing would stop them. There was a solution for everything. And uh, in telling the story, that was one thing that uh, Great Grandpa always tried to emphasize to us as children, that uh, no matter what somebody tells you, uh, if if it's worth doing, it can be done. You just have to try a little harder, and you will succeed. Yeah, and and the, I mean, it's an incredible feat that they did. It's an incredible. It's even incredible, even though the German team sort of cheated and used the train in the states, and then you know had a delay and uh, all that stuff. But it's even a feat for them to make it. Like being able to to cross the world at that time using automobiles as your main source of transportation is an unbelievable accomplishment. And how many teams actually made it to Paris? Is it just those two or was it one more? There was one more. Incredibly, uh, a total of three of the six cars, 50% of the field actually made it all the way. The mm -hmm. third team to come in were the Italian Zust. And uh, they came in September, mid-September. And uh, the other teams referred to the Italians as, as the children's car. These were all kids, literally, in their late teens and early 20s. And this was a romantic adventure. As a matter of fact, the uh, great Gramp could never figure out why the Italians, particularly in the United States, were always behind. Um, they lagged pretty much all the way across. And it wasn't until young Antonio Scarfaglio, who was the son of an Apple's uh, newspaper man, uh, actually wrote an account uh, of the race uh, a couple of years after. And young Antonio told about their adventures as they, and it seems that uh, in one instance, they got to California and the almond trees were in blossom. And young Antonio writes of the Ameri beautiful American girls with their long white flowing dresses standing beneath these almond trees that the Italian team actually had a very active discussion about quitting the race and spending the rest of their life in California. <laughs> well, fortunately, their better judgment took over and they continued the race. But it seems that the uh, American girls were a large reason 
uh, the major reason in many cases for the uh, slow movement of the Italian lads across the United States. Well, good for them. Good for them. They had they had fun. They had an adventure. That's that's again. It's incredible. They made it. You know, not just because of the California girls, but actually <laughs> the, the the physical challenges along the way as well. And, and yeah, there's so much to learn in this the great race. It really is the great race. It's firsts and for so many different things. It, it's a feat of ingenuity. It's a feat of uh, of endurance. George Schuster, your great grandfather is the only one that was in the Thomas Flyer for the whole trip because there were other people involved, uh, but they weren't there the entire right. time. Is there anybody else you want to mention from the team? Well, uh, certainly George Miller. Uh, George McAdam was the newspaper representative from the New York Times, and he was a creative individual. He actually joined the team in Seattle. Uh, the first reporter, T. Walter Williams, uh, quit the race in Chicago handing his camera and his notebook to a great gramp saying, you're all going to die if you do this. And um, so it, it wasn't until Seattle that the next New York Times reporter came on board and he brought with him uh, to the pier his suitcase in one hand and a crate of birds with, in the other hand. And so great gramp asked him, well, what are the birds about? And he said, well, in those days, ships didn't have telegraph. So he had to file a story with New York Times every single day. Mm -hmm. So while they were at sea, he would tie the story around the leg of the bird who would fly back to the telegrapher's office in Seattle, who would key the story back to New York, and that would be front page news the next morning in the New wow. York Times. That wow. was high tech in yeah. 1908. Um, the, other, the other thing, too, and, and as I say, there's, there are many stories uh, to tell. But a lot of additional, uh, including videos, um, are available at the uh, New York to Paris Race website, historic mm -hmm. website. And that's very simple. That's just the, T-H-E, great, G-R-E-A-T, auto, A-U-T-O, race, R-A-C-E, dot com. And um, a lot more information is available there. Absolutely. And I'll provide a link to that in my show notes, listeners as well, so you can find it. But definitely check that out. So the the pictures, the the articles, everything is just incredible. And before I let you go, I'd love to hear about how this this story and growing up and hearing about this and learning about the great race, did it have an influence on you with automobiles? And what is your relationship with the automobile world? Well, it sure did. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just came back from Thomas Flyer Week in Buffalo, where the city of Buffalo declared um, a special event. And we had Thomas's. There are only 55 that we know of left in the world. Uh, and actually, uh, 19 of them were in Buffalo for that event, the largest gathering of Thomas's in history. And that's where they were all built. And uh, those uh, those uh, owners and, and their cars uh, participated in several events. One event, we took those Thomases to the brink of Niagara Falls, right down where the pedestrians are able to go. And they were just inches from the cataract. And uh, that was a photo op that probably topped them all. I can't think of a more spectacular background for these classic automobiles to be. And then uh, later in the week, they all toured to the factory where they were built. And sitting in front of each one of them um, was the uh, 1907 New York to Paris Thomas Flyer. So uh, the um, 
cousins, I guess you could say, of the, of the Thomas, uh, were actually side by side with the world champion for uh, for a full week, and that for the for everyone was uh, an amazing moment to be able to see these extraordinary early 1900 automobiles manufactured in Buffalo side by side with their very famous cousin. Well, I, I think that about does it, Jeff. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to share the story, to talk about this. I will provide links to all sorts of things in the show notes. So everybody, please check that out. And if you haven't, please listen to the episode where we actually talk about the the most recent great race with the X Cup. And yeah, Jeff, thank you again. And if there's anything else you, you want to point people towards, uh, you know, now's the time to do it. Well, one thing of particular interest, uh, a new book was just released last week during Thomas Flyer Week, and it's titled uh, The Man and Car That Circled the Globe. And uh, it's available actually through the Pierce Arrow Museum in Buffalo, New York. It can be ordered there. Uh, At some point in the future, it'll uh, be available online. But for now, all you have to do is call the Buffalo Transportation Pierce Aero Museum, and they can arrange. Now, the really best part about the book is it's not my words, and uh, an author, John Taby, actually compiled it, but it was taken from the original manuscript George wrote in 1908-1909, and shortly after the race, and it's the day-by-day account um, Tells a little bit about what he thought about the French and some wow. of the uh, encounters that he went. And so the book is his own words, coupled with uh, many unpublished uh, photographs that were taken uh, along the way. Uh, so it's an incredible story of the race itself. And it, it will probably become soon become kind of the go-to reference for anything on the race there's a section in there about the E.R. Thomas Company telling a little bit about E.R. and the factory where all these fine cars were built. And uh, also tells uh, about the Buffalo Pier Transportation Museum, which fe- features Pierce Arrow, which, of course, were built in Buffalo. As a matter of fact, George actually worked for them uh, after leaving Thomas when the uh, company could no longer compete with Henry Ford and went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just simply walked up the street and went to work for um Pierce. So uh, those, all of those stories, it's about 174 pages long. Um, beautiful book. They really did an outstanding job of it. And certainly for anybody interested in early automotive history, that would be uh, something to add for on the Christmas list. Well, I will definitely get that myself. That's incredible. I, I wasn't aware of that. That's really exciting. I, I'm sure everybody will enjoy it. And as I say, it's uh, it's literally a first-person look yeah. because it was George who wrote it. Well, great. Well, thank you again, Jeff. I, I, I really appreciate the time. I've been looking forward to this ever since I first got introduced to you uh, because of my my interest in the great race. And it was a joy to hear about it. And uh, I look forward to honestly hearing more stories as the years go on from you. So thank you so much for being on. It was my pleasure. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share it with you. 
thank you all for listening to Fuel for the Future. And before we wrap out, I do want to mention that Jeff Mall is associated working on the youth board of the Antique Automobile Club of America, which works with youth to inspire, excite, and educate about automotives and automotive history. You can read about them at aaca.org. You can also learn more about the X Cup of the Great Race at rpm.foundation or greatrace.com. They already have info up about next year's 2024 event. Fuel for the Future is driven by America's Automotive Trust and presented by State Farm Insurance. Follow the show on the listening app of your choice, and we encourage you to leave a review. For more information on America's Automotive Trust and how you can get involved, visit americasautomotivetrust.org.